You don't need to tell spiritual people to minister. They just do it. You need to push carnal people to minister. You need to shove people who are reluctant to minister to do that. This isn't the attitude of someone who says, well, I'm glad I'm no longer serving. Let someone else take over now. That's not the attitude of a deacon. A deacon is a godly person and he is committed to ministry, whatever it might be. And so this is very important for us to know because deacons are to be just as godly as elders. These are not second class citizens in terms of elders being the most spiritual and deacons somehow not cutting it to be elders. So we'll just call them a deacon. No, no, that's very wrong. And the church needs to understand that. You don't look around and say, look, this person's got a real problem in their life, so they can't be an elder. Let's make them a deacon. That's not the Bible's perspective. Or you look around and you say, well, he needs something to do in the church. Let's get him active. Let's ask him to join the deacon board. That's not the Bible's perspective. That's done in so many churches, but that is not what the Bible teaches. They are to be just as godly as elders. How do we know that? Because the qualifications are so very, very similar. They're not exactly a repeat, but they're so very, very similar. Today on Verse by Verse, we will once again be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Now, apart from these verses, we know very little about deacons in the early church. But what we do know from these verses is enough. As we will learn today, deacons are to be godly people. Their character is to be above reproach. We don't need to know specifically how they functioned in the early church because needs change as times change. However, we must keep in mind that deacons are servants. Sometimes as I listen to verse by verse, it seems that there is an awful lot to digest. If you would like to be able to hear these broadcasts again, please head over to versebyverseradio.org and sign up for the Verse by Verse podcast. And I'll remind you about that at the end of today's program. But right now, we are ready for Pastor Steve Kreloff to continue to teach us through 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's look at verses 8 through 13. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and of their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. As I said last week, apart from these verses, we know very little about deacons in the first century in the early church. We know very little apart from this about the office of a deacon in the early church. But I want you to understand that what we do know from these verses is enough. It's really enough because these verses tell us that deacons are to be godly people. Deacons are to have their character as such that they are above reproach. And we really don't need to know a whole lot more than that. We don't need to know specifically how they functioned in the early church because needs change. 
Deacons are servants. In fact, if you want to label this message, we call it servants of the church. That's what they are. They are the official servants. And wherever they are, they serve. They are these people who serve, but their character is to be above reproach. So what they do really isn't so important as much as what they are. Because when a person is committed to Christ and is this kind of character, whatever is necessary, they'll meet that need. They'll serve. They'll minister. You don't need to tell spiritual people to minister. They just do it. You need to push carnal people to minister. You need to shove people who are reluctant to minister to do that. This isn't the attitude of someone who says, well, I'm glad I'm no longer serving. Let someone else take over now. That's not the attitude of a deacon. A deacon is a godly person and he is committed to ministry, whatever it might be. And so this is very important for us to know because deacons are to be just as godly as elders. These are not second class citizens in terms of elders being the most spiritual and deacons somehow not cutting it to be elders. So we'll just call them a deacon. No, no, that's very wrong and the church needs to understand that you don't look around and say look this person's got a real problem in their life so they can't be an elder let's make them a deacon that's not the bible's perspective or you look around and you say well he needs something to do in the church let's get him active let's ask him to join the deacon board that's not the bible's perspective that's done in so many churches but that is not what the bible teaches they are to be just as godly as elders how do we know that because the qualifications are so very very similar they're not exactly a repeat but they're so very very similar deacons are to have the same spiritual maturity as elders the only difference that i can see is that deacons don't have to be able to teach in their function as deacons. Now that doesn't mean that they don't teach. And that doesn't mean that they can't teach. They may very well teach. They may very well be very good and great teachers. But what we're saying is to function as deacons, it isn't necessary to teach. And that's different from being an elder. Elders are to do the teaching, whether it be from the pulpit. It probably is not with most It is with me, but it could be a Sunday school class, it could be a home Bible study, it could be a one-on-one counseling situation, or it could just be a one-on-one conversation and discipleship ministry. But elders are to be involved in teaching in whatever form it takes. Deacons don't have to be, though they may indeed teach, but that is not part of the function of a deacon per se. So as far as spiritual maturity goes, these official servants of the church are not inferior to elders. They are not those who just can't cut it, and so we'll wait on them. No, they are to be just as godly. Now, Paul gives, and the whole passage really is dealing with requirements to be a deacon. It's a very simple passage. There's no fancy outline. There's no lot of subpoints. It's just basically requirements to be a deacon, categories of requirements. And then in verse 13, he speaks about the reward for those who have served well as deacons. So let's just go through this passage and see the different requirements. First of all, we see personal requirements. There needs to be personal requirements and standards in his life. Verse 8. Notice in verse 8, Paul starts off with saying deacons likewise. Now that term likewise is very important. We'll see it in a few minutes. But likewise means in the same way. And he's now referring to a new office deacon. He has already spoken about elders. Now he's saying likewise. In other words, now in the same way that elders must be this, so deacons must be this. Keep that in your mind, that likewise introduces a new category of office. Likewise, deacons must be, first of all, men of dignity. Now, this word means worthy of respect. That's basically the meaning. They are to be dignified. There is to be a stateliness about them. 
In other words, a deacon cannot be a frivolous kind of a man who treats serious things lightly. He is not to be a flippant person. He is not to be a jokester. That doesn't mean that he can't tell jokes. That doesn't mean that he can't say funny things. It just means that he's not looked at as a joke. He doesn't come across in a flippant manner. In fact, we gain some insight into this in Titus chapter 2, verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified. This is what you would expect in an older, mature man. He has to be dignified. It's what you just expect. There is a stateliness about him. Now, it doesn't mean that he's always serious, and it doesn't mean that he's austere and you can't get close to him. As we saw this morning, the Apostle Paul was the type of man that you could cry on his shoulders and you can weep with him and you could laugh with him and you probably could have arm wrestled with him. And I suspect that the Lord Jesus was just like that. But it just means that the deacon faces serious things in his ministry. He deals with people's problems and issues of relief and widows and orphans and struggles and finances. And he's just not joking about serious things of the Lord all the time. He's not doing that. The man takes his service for the Lord seriously. And he's characterized by a seriousness because life is serious. And certainly eternal things are serious. And it's really hard to serve people. In fact, impossible to effectively serve people if they don't take you seriously. If you're a joke to them, if you're flippant, if you're frivolous. So this man is to be a man of dignity. Secondly, he is not double-tongued. This means he doesn't say one thing to one person, another thing to another person. We have an expression about that. We say he doesn't talk out of both sides of his mouth. That's exactly what it means. Two tongues. He has integrity in his speech. A deacon is to be a man who has righteous speech. He is a people person. He speaks to a lot of people because of the nature of his ministry. He understands what's going on in people's lives. He visits people. He understands that people have problems. They have needs. And he knows a lot about people's situations in the church. He is a man who has to be trusted with that kind of information. He is a man who you should be able to share your deepest problems and not question whether he's going to go to somebody and say something else. He can't be a person who lacks integrity in his speech. He doesn't spread rumors behind someone's back, but to their face say something else. No, what he says to one person is what he'll say to another person. He is consistent and righteous in his speech. He's not a gossip from one house to another. You can depend on what he says because his word is good. That's the thought here. He's not double-tongued. What he says is consistent and it's right and it's true. Thirdly, in his personal requirements, he's not addicted to much wine. Now, the reason I'm not spending a whole lot of time on these is because we took nine weeks to cover elders, and a lot of these things were mentioned in the series on elders. And we extensively dealt with this issue of wine, so I won't deal with it now except to say... Paul doesn't call for deacons to totally abstain from wine, but rather not to be controlled by it. You are to be noted for your soberness and your clean thinking. That's the thought. Number four, he's not fond of sordid gain, which means he's not greedy for money. He's not greedy for gaining money. That's very important, very important. It would be important always for a deacon to not be materialistic and not really be greedy for gain because deacons would be involved with funds just as they are today. They would be involved in taking funds to people, in handling relief, in visiting people who they would need to take things to them. And if the person was greedy, he just couldn't handle this. Remember, they didn't have checks back then. They didn't have credit cards A deacon had to be one who could be trusted with money, trusted with material things. And we've all heard about people who've said, as you've witnessed to them, well, I'm not going to listen to anything you have to say about Christ because way back when I was a kid, I remember a deacon who had his hand in everything. Or I remember a pastor who had his hand in everything. 
don't tell me about that. I went to churches where deacons stole money. Well, that's the kind of thing Paul is trying to avoid. So a deacon must not be governed by money and materialism. The Bible says a person whose desire is to have financial gain will eventually get corrupted. If he has that attitude in him, eventually he's going to fall to it. Because 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 says this, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. He's not saying being rich is wrong. He's just saying if your goal is to be rich, you are going to be tempted. You are going to fall. You are going to be corrupted. If money is your goal, then you will fall in one way or another. Someone has said this, Judas was not the last treasurer who betrayed his Lord for a few pieces of silver. And so that's the thought here. In his personal requirements, he's to be like that. What about his spiritual requirements? Where is the man spiritually? There is only one spiritual requirement that a deacon has, and that's found in verse 9. But holding to the mystery of the faith, with a clear conscience. This is tremendous. We could speak about this for hours, but we won't. Holding to the mystery of the faith. What does that mean? The word mystery, when we hear it, we think of a novel. I remember talking to Dr. J. Vernon McGee, and he told me, he said, you know what I do as a hobby? No. You know, I don't know. He said, I read Agatha Christie novels. I just love it. It's mysterious. It's a mystery. He really likes that. I only say that because when we think of mystery, we usually think of something like that. You know, you'll go home and you'll watch Murder, She Wrote, and you try to figure it out. Who did it? Okay, you relate to that. You understand that. But that's not what the Bible means by mystery. The Bible does not mean something that can't be figured out, a puzzle, something that if you just read on, you can figure it. No, that's not what the Bible means by it. The Greek word mysterion means something previously hidden that is now revealed, something that God kept as a secret, but now he's made known. The mystery of the faith is New Testament doctrine. That's what it is. It's anything basically from Matthew to Revelation is the mystery of the faith. It's the New Testament. So what is Paul saying? The deacon must know Christian doctrine. See, it is not just elders who have to know the word of God. Deacons have to know it. Now, maybe they don't have to teach it like elders, but deacons have to know the truth. Deacons have to have convictions based upon New Testament doctrine. You don't take somebody and make him a deacon if he doesn't know the word of God, specifically the New Testament. He is settled in the faith. He has a good grasp of New Testament truths. doesn't mean that he has to be a scholar. just means that the central truths of the Christian faith are his. He understands them. He understands the deity of Christ. He can defend that. He understands the Bible is the word of God. He can defend that. He understands about the resurrection of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ. He understands that. He understands the return of Christ. But that's not all. Notice verse 9 says, not only does he have to hold, and it means to grasp, the mystery of the faith, the New Testament, But he has to do it with a clear conscience. Anybody can know the Bible if you just study hard enough. But this man is one whose conscience doesn't accuse him. In other words, it's clear. His conscience doesn't accuse him because he's obedient. He is consistent in his life with the convictions. In other words, the thought is he lives out his convictions. Now, this is so very important for us because I know we've all run into people who've held offices in the church and they know nothing of the Bible and they live like they know nothing about the Bible. And you look and you say, how did they ever make a deacon? I don't know. Obviously not because the church followed 1 Timothy 3. But Paul is saying he has spiritual consistency in his life. The Bible isn't a theological textbook for him, but a word from God that applies to his life, to his work, to his home, to his relationships with people. You see, he has to be spiritual to minister to others. 
He doesn't have to necessarily teach, but he'll be in contact with people in order to comfort them and encourage them and minister to them. He must be spiritual because that's the people God uses. God doesn't use carnal people to encourage. Carnal people are a discouragement. They are not an encouragement. You see, this man is a model of obedience, and that's the thought. Not perfect, but a consistent model of obedience. So, personal requirements, spiritual requirements. What about maturity requirements? Well, there's no age given, but there is the maturity level that has to be here. Verse 10 says, And let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. They must first pass the test. Now, this does not mean that the deacon is on probation. And this does not mean that he's called into a room and he takes a quiz. And this does not mean that it's a trial run. Let's see how he does. And if he does okay, we'll just continue. No, that's not the thought here. The thought here is that before you put someone in the office of a deacon, you have enough time to observe his life. You watch him. That is to say, you don't take somebody who's been attending the church for three weeks and say, well, we're short of men. Could you do it? I have a friend who was backslidden for eight years. Eight years. He started getting back to the Lord. In fact, he did get back to the Lord. It only takes a moment to repent. He started going to a church, and he was there, I think it was two weeks. They wanted him to teach Sunday school to get involved. This fellow forgot almost everything he knew about the Word of God. He needed to be ministered to. He had been away from the Lord for eight years. Surprising they didn't ask him to be a deacon, but that's often what happens. Now also, you must observe a person for a while. And what you will find out is where he's at spiritually. You'll find out if he's faithful in every area of his life. Is he concerned for others? Is he willing to sacrifice himself? Does he have a servant's heart? Does he have a good reputation? You're looking at his character, his conduct, and you can't tell that except over a period of time. You have to see how he handles difficulties. You have to see how he handles suffering. You have to see how he handles criticism. You have to see how he handles all different circumstances of life. And in the past, I have personally been guilty of pushing people to be deacons who are not ready. And I've repented of that. I had a dear friend years ago who I encouraged to be a deacon and we just about destroyed this man. Very, very careful about that. Hopefully I've learned my lesson. So after you observe him, what you're seeing is, does he prove himself to be blameless in the areas of his life? That's what verse 10 is saying. And let these also first be tested. Then, if they pass the test, you'll understand they're beyond reproach. If he's blameless, then you can appoint him to the office of a deacon, but he must be observed. It's not a quick thing. Now, how long do you have to do it? I don't know. I don't know how long, and I don't want to go beyond what the Bible says. Just a period of time to the point that you're satisfied that this guy is qualified. And I might add, you don't make a man a deacon to mature him. That's not what you do. You don't say, look, he needs experience in serving the Lord. If we just put him on the board, then he'll get active and he'll get mature. And that's the way that we'll help him. No, you won't help him. You'll hurt him. No, you observe him for a period of time to see if he's already mature and faithful in his life and service to the Lord. And then you recognize that. No church makes a man a deacon. No church makes a man an elder. We simply recognize what he already is. That's all. Let me illustrate it this way. In the first few centuries, they had to decide what was scripture and what was not. What was the canon of scripture and what were pseudonyms and false letters. And there were people saying that Paul wrote this and others saying this was written by an apostle. And the church had a number of tests to recognize whether something was really the canon of scripture. It had to be written either by an apostle or a prophet or someone close to them. It had to be consistent with other New Testament truth and the rest of the word of God. It had to be recognized by the church. They had to be obedient to it. At large, the church had to accept it, and other tests like that. What were they doing? Were they making the Bible the word of God? No. 
They were recognizing what was the word of God. We do not make scripture scripture. We simply recognize what is scripture. In the same way, the church simply recognizes that a man is a servant. The church recognizes that a man is a pastor. You don't make him something and automatically he becomes a servant. No. Is he a servant? If he's a servant, it will come through loud and clear and then you just recognize that. Is he an elder? If he is, you'll see him minister. You'll see him shepherd. You'll see him reach out to people. Then you recognize that. So you don't do it the other way around. You don't give him a title and then say, let's make him this kind of a man. No, he is this kind of a man. And then you simply recognize it. How about moral requirement? Let's skip verse 11 because we'll come back to that in a moment and go to verse 12. This is the moral requirement. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife. Now, once again, we dealt with this back in the early days of our study on elders. This is speaking not of divorce and it is not speaking of his marital status. This is speaking of moral purity. He's faithful to his wife, to his one and only wife. And I want you to understand, this is speaking just of moral purity. Now, some people want to make an issue of this and say, well, it's divorce and, well, it's his marital status. But I want you to know that there is no virtue in having a wife. It is a wonderful thing, but unsaved men have wives. So that's not the point. Unsaved men are married. Paul is not saying that it's virtuous and it's moral godliness to have a wife. Anybody can be married. A pagan can be married, and most are. The point is this. Is he a one-woman man? That's literally the expression. Is he devoted to the woman who is his wife? It's not that he has only one wife, but that he's totally devoted to the one he has. That's the point here. He has eyes only for her. He is not a flirt. He is not interested in others. He is not fooling around with others. He is committed to that one woman. That's the thought here. So it's moral purity, and that fits in very well with what we know was going on in the Roman Empire in those days. Then, finally, for a deacon are the family requirements. Paul is not as explicit here as he is in dealing with elders, but the principle is the same. And he says, good managers of their children and their own household. He has to manage his children and household well. If he can't serve properly his small household, then he won't properly serve God's larger household. So there's a management thing that he's dealing with, and there's wisdom in that. If he can't serve the few he has, then why do you think he'll be able to effectively serve the many? And we dealt with that in elders, and I don't want to just repeat that. But let's jump back to verse 11. I promised you we would look at this issue of does the Bible teach in verse 11 that these women are deacons' wives or does it teach that they are deaconesses? Let me read verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now the problem is this word can be translated wives or women, the plural. It is the word from which we get our term gynecologist, gune. And so the question is, are these women deacons, or are these the wives of deacons? There is no feminine form of deacon. That's why we couldn't be very clear and sure this morning when we looked at Phoebe. It says she's a servant. It doesn't say it in the feminine or masculine. She's a servant. There is no feminine form of diakonos. Well, let me tell you, after studying the issue... I think the evidence points to female deacons. Now, I've not believed that for years. For years, Bruce Mills and I have gone back and forth discussing this very issue, and I saying, well, it's the wives of deacons, and Bruce correcting me, no, it's female deacons. But I want you to understand that this week and last week, I read as much on this as I possibly could, 
had seminary magazines and had commentaries and went into the Greek. And I want you to know after all was said and done and the smoke cleared and the dust settled, it is my belief that the evidence very clearly points to female deacons. And I want to tell you why. Well, I'm curious as to what Pastor Steve has to say about female deacons. But I guess we will have to wait until next time to hear the answer. Uh, Before I forget, let me remind you of how you can sign up for the Verse by Verse podcast. Surf on over to versebyverseradio.org, click on the podcast link, follow the directions. Having the podcast is a great way to go back and listen to some of the key points in that day's program. Or you could also refer that to a friend as well. So that's versebyverseradio.org. Today, Pastor Steve gave an interesting illustration about how the church fathers decided what was scripture and what wasn't. Either a writing was scripture or it wasn't. Nobody could call something scripture and thus make it so. Along the same lines, the church is to identify men who are pastors or elders as well as those who are servants or deacons. A title does not make someone an elder or a servant. I thought Pastor Steve brought a lot of clarity today. So please join us next time for Verse by Verse on this great radio station.